One Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. And for more information, please visit us on the web at onechurch.net. Well, if you have your Bible today, why don't you grab it and turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Am I in the light here? You guys can see me? All right. Head's looking all right. Okay, good. Um, while you're turning to Matthew chapter 5, let me just mention a couple of things coming up. Uh, as I, I, you all are aware, uh, we are kind of in this you know, weird transition season. And uh, we're not where we used to be pre-COVID, but aren't you glad we're not where we're, we're, we're heading somewhere? I, I, that didn't come out the way. We're not going back, okay? We're moving forward. We're moving forward. And uh, we... Uh, are so excited that we have got a building of our own. And, uh, you know, we have always said that um, church is not the building, but how many of you know sometimes it's hard to have somebody over to dinner when you're homeless? And uh, so we are so excited to have a building of our own, and we are in process right now of renovating it. I'll just give you a, a little update kind of on where things stand uh, right now. We're in the process of just finalizing designs for permitting. Uh, if you've ever been through the permitting process, how many of you know it needs some, you, you need some extra grace to go through that process? Some of you know that. And uh, so we are uh, going to be moving through that process. And I just ask you, if you would, to be in prayer with us, uh, that God would give us favor that there would be no hiccups or setbacks in that process. Uh, we are expecting right now that we will begin construction uh, in October. And I know October may seem like a long way away, but how many of you know uh, it, it's going to be here before we know it? And so uh, in, the, in the meantime, we are continuing uh, to, to just work through all of the details. Also, we're doing all the work that we can practically. Uh, some of you were with us a few weeks ago. We had a work day, and uh, we've got another work day coming up this Saturday, right Brad? Another work day. And uh, so that is the moment uh, that you can roll your sleeves up. That's the moment that, that you can, if you've ever wanted to break something in Jesus' name, that is your moment, okay? How many of you know demo is where the fun is, right? And so come on out. We're going to continue the demo process. Uh, this coming Saturday from 8 to noon, we'll be at the building. We'd love to invite all of you to come and be a part of that. Um, and then just to be in prayer uh, with us for the entire process. We'll continue to keep you posted. Uh, when we get the permits, we're going to have a big permit party, okay? We're going to celebrate that next step forward. Uh, and also, just practically, um, you know, we're in this season where we're not gathering all together every week, but we are doing that bi-weekly, okay? So I know we had a, a disruption to that routine, but we're going to be back together in two weeks. Everybody say two weeks. Two weeks. Okay, now I'm going to throw a curveball at you because we're actually going to be uh, here two weeks in a row. Okay, so last Sunday uh, of August, who, who likes that idea? Uh, some of you do. Uh, we're going to be here the last Sunday of August, and then also uh, we're going to be back here on the first Sunday of September. So technically, we're not bi-weekly. Uh, if some of you are like calendar neatniks, we're actually the first, third, and fifth Sunday of the month when that happens. So anyway, we're going to be back here on that Sunday, and that will be awesome. Uh, also, uh, this coming Thursday night, we have got something that I am excited about. How many of you love our worship team? I'm so grateful that we have a worship team that is not only skilled musically, but but leads spiritually. And, um, you know, how, how many of you know you can play a gig, but that doesn't mean that you're worshiping? 
And uh, talent and heart are not mutually exclusive, right? Uh, but, uh, you, you know, you, we need not just talent, we also need heart. And uh, we've been so excited in this season as we've just kind of done something different. I felt like the Lord said that we were to do uh, what I was calling worship in the raw, which was just to kind of pull away some of the, the musicianship that we can become dependent on to worship. Now, again, music is important for worship, but how many of you know worship is not music? It's a lot more than music. Romans 12 says it this way, let us offer our, our bodies a living sacrifice. And, and what really makes this incredible is when we, not just the worship team, but we as a church have been living a life of worship all week long, and when we come together, we don't have to wait for the band to kind of lift it up to, you know, hit that right chord and hopefully they'll play my jam so I can enter into the presence of God. We're coming going, if nobody else is going into the presence of God, I'm going into the presence of God. And that's where we're going as a church. And how many of you know, when that's the heart, the music becomes incredible, and I, I believe God's going to do something great in our music team and not just our worship team, but uh, really in every team. But we are going to be launching our worship sessions. And that's just kind of an opportunity for those of you who maybe uh, have not been on the worship team in the past, but you've got some, uh, some secret music skill. I see some of you out there. I'm just going to make eye contact with some of you right now that have some skill, and uh, we, we want to invite you to come and be a part of it. Or maybe you've been a part in the past and you've stepped back. We're just going to regroup, regather, relaunch as a team. And so that's going to be this Thursday night at our office right above uh, Lineage on Colonial, and that's going to be at 7 o'clock, I think, Kendall. Is that right? 7 o'clock. And so we'd love to invite you to come. All right? Well, did you find Matthew chapter 5? Great, great. Uh, we're going to continue our series this morning that we started about a month ago that we're calling Counterculture. And in this series, we're really talking about uh, what kind of people is God looking for? What kind of church is God looking for? You know, we are moving into a building, and we want a beautiful building, and it's going to be a beautiful building. But how many of you know God doesn't just want a beautiful building, He wants a beautiful people? And I don't mean just beautiful physically, although you guys are that. I'm talking about something inwardly that radiates out, that reveals the nature of Jesus, that really reveals the, the, the culture of heaven. And that's what church should be, more than a building. We, it's a people. And yes, we are preparing the building. We are preparing the place. But I believe, more importantly, God is preparing a people. God's preparing a people. And so that's what we're talking about. And there's no better place to discover what is really the culture that God is looking for. There's no better place than in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm telling you, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is profitable. But if you want some power-packed, condensed, you know, just life-giving words, there is no better place than the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I have been looking forward to speaking this uh, for about a month, okay? So I'm excited to speak this today. And um, we started a few weeks ago, I'm just going to give you a refresher, we started a few weeks ago with a sermon that I called Prepare for Landing. 
prepare for landing. And we talked about the fact that Jesus' message, his primary message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that is foundational for everything. That's foundational for everything. Jesus' primary message was not believe in me and you go to heaven when you die. Now that is true. That's the blessed assurance that we have. But that's not all that he said. He said, I'm coming near to you. Not just for the sweet by and by, but the, the, the nitty gritty, you know, life of today. How many of you are glad for that? How many of you are glad that when you follow Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, cool, see you on the other side. He says, come on, take my hand, walk with me, learn from me. I'm going to show you how to do life. And that's what it means to live life in the kingdom of God. And so we're going to, I want to remind you of that because that really is the frame through which or the lens through which we're going to see everything in this uh, beautiful passage of scripture. But today I want to pick up in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5 in verse 1. And I want to read down to verse 12, and it says this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth. Anytime Jesus opens his mouth, we should open our ears, amen? And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I want to speak to you today a message that I'm calling, We're Not in Kansas Anymore. We're not in Kansas anymore. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And God, we thank you that your word is spirit and it is life. And God, we pray that you would come now, speak to us, Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that this would be more than just a nice check the box on a Sunday experience. But God, we pray, Lord, that we would hear your words in a fresh way. We pray, God, that your word would penetrate our heart today and bring forth good fruit in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're not in Kansas anymore. Look at your neighbor say, we're not in Kansas anymore. Maybe you've never been to Kansas, <laughs> but we're not in Kansas anymore. That's a, that's a statement that has kind of become a, a cultural statement. If you're familiar uh, with its origin, you know that those were words that were uttered by Dorothy to her little dog, Toto. 
when she was whirlwinded away and landed in the new world of Oz. And Dorothy, as she recognized, I'm not where I used to be. Something's different. Something's changed. She says, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. And the Bible doesn't use those words, but I just kind of feel like if you were in that crowd of people that were listening to Jesus on that day, I kind of feel like there may be no more fitting statement that we could say than, we're not in Kansas anymore. You see, that statement has become more than just a statement. It has really become a recognition that there is a change of normality, We have left one environment. We have left one place of familiarity. We have left perhaps what has been our comfort zone, and we've moved into a whole new world. And that is what Jesus was trying to get to his listeners on that day. I've come to bring a whole new reality, a new reality of life with God that changes everything. You're you're not in the place you used to be. You've come into a new world. We're not in Kansas anymore. And he's revealing that reality that through faith in Jesus, there is a transfer out of the kingdom of darkness and a coming into the kingdom of light. That's what the gospel is. And that's what he's trying to reveal in this passage of Scripture. And it's important for every one of us to understand that because if you don't understand that, nothing in what Jesus says will make sense to you. And we're going to look at these statements of Jesus, eight or nine, depending how you count, proclamations that Jesus makes that are revealing the culture of heaven. And and Jesus is, is trying to get people to understand. He's trying to get us to understand. He's trying to get his listeners to understand. What is heaven like? What is life with God like? If you want to know what it's like, here's what it looks like. And he's going to give us these statements. But before we look at that, I want to make two observations. How many of you have read this passage before? Probably all of us have read the Sermon on the Mount at some point in time. Our problem with the Sermon on the Mount is not our lack of familiarity with it. The problem with the Sermon on the Mount is that we've become so familiar with it that we actually miss its significance. And I want to show you a couple of things. I want to ask you two questions or make two observations just at the outset before we get to the words of Jesus. And the first observation that I want us to make is this. Who was Jesus speaking to? Who was Jesus speaking to? Look at verse 1. It says this, And Jesus, seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Let me ask you the question again. Who was Jesus speaking to? He was speaking, I think you're headed in the right direction. (laughs) He's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to his disciples. And here's what I want you to see. And I believe Matthew writing this gospel wants us to see two groups of people. There were the multitudes And Jesus loved the multitudes. He saw the multitudes. The Bible says in the book of Luke that he saw the multitudes and he was moved with compassion for them. 
He loved the people. Jesus loves all people. Jesus loves all people. But the multitudes like to hang around Jesus, and they kind of watched from a distance, but there was a different group of people, and that was the disciples. How many of you know there's a difference between being in the multitude and being a disciple? There's a difference between liking to hang around Jesus and really wanting to follow Jesus. And Jesus loved the multitudes, but he was always about calling people from the multitude into discipleship. And Jesus would do things like this when a multitude began to gather because he had fed them with fish and loaves. He'd turn around to them and say something like this, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. To which every PR director would say, Jesus, are you crazy? You're killing this thing. You're killing this movement, Jesus. This is bad for business. But Jesus understood something. He understood that ultimately every movement doesn't start with the multitudes. A movement doesn't start with the multitudes. How many of you have ever read The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell? It's a, it's a great book. My dad and I have read it. And maybe one other person. The Tipping Point. And Malcolm Gladwell, a great book that came out in the early 2000s, but he talks about how movements begin. And they don't start with the masses. They start with a few. And Jesus understood this. Jesus poured his life really into 12 followers. And there was lots of people that hung around, but there was few who followed. Few people that actually listened to the words of Jesus And in the world's perspective, you know, the multitude is great. But in Jesus' perspective, it's actually the impact of his disciples that is great. It's the impact of that small group of people that said, Jesus, where else could we go? Only you have the words of life. And that's the group that Jesus was speaking to. It's like the... 20th century anthropologist Margaret Mead said, or or as she was getting at this reality when she said, never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Jesus was imparting this reality into his disciples. So who was Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to his disciples. That begs the question to each of us today, what group are we in? What group are we in? Are we in the multitudes that we like the excitement? We like the, you know, we like the fish and the loaves? Or are we the people that will actually endure the hard seasons, the hard sayings, the difficult moments that ultimately bring us into life in the kingdom of God? So Jesus was speaking to his disciples. The second thing I want you to observe is where was Jesus speaking from? Now we've read over this. We all know this is the Sermon on the Mount, so let me ask you, where was Jesus speaking from? The Mount. (laughs) The Mount. Jesus was speaking from the Mount. Now, for us, we can read over that and we can just think, um, you know, uh, Jesus kind of needed a platform, you know, there wasn't any light, so he just kind of climbed up on the mountain, uh, you know, a little makeshift platform so that people could hear what Jesus was saying. But for the original listeners that Matthew is recording here, the multitudes and the disciples, the mountain was hugely significant. Because the the, the mountain and speaking from the mountain or a person on the mountain represented nearness to God. For, For the original people that heard this, 
as Jesus went up on the mountain, I, I think it probably triggered a memory or, or a story that had been passed down to them of another teacher that had come up on the mountain. Another teacher that received teaching from God and delivered it from the mountain. The Bible says in, in Exodus chapter 19 that, that Moses received the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and he came down from the mountain and the people stood at the edge of the mountain. And so what, what I want us to see is that even in this context, we can read over it and we can just think, oh, Sermon on the Mount, you know, that's like a bad branding thing. Couldn't come up with anything better. But what Jesus is actually revealing is his, his position on the mountain is revealing the authority with which he is speaking. He's saying that like Moses came down and brought the law of God to God's people, I am bringing a new teaching from the mountain to God's people. If you know the story of Israel, it was actually at that moment that, that they went from being the children of Israel to becoming the nation of Israel through the teaching of Moses. And what Jesus is saying is that I am giving this teaching not just as a nice word of inspiration. I'm actually giving authoritative teaching on what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Now, I, I want us to get this because sometimes we think I just believe in Jesus in the same way that I can believe in anything. And there is no there is no action, corresponding action, that will be manifested in my life in order to experience what Jesus has come to bring me. But what Jesus was revealing is that he is coming to give a new law. He is the lawgiver. The Bible says in the book of James that there is one lawgiver. And Jesus was revealing that just as Moses was the lawgiver, I'm the lawgiver. I'm the true lawgiver. Now, Moses' law was written on tablets. It was external. And the whole point of Moses' law is that you could never fulfill the law in your own effort. But Jesus is saying, I'm coming as a lawgiver, a new lawgiver, to give a new law that's not an external law, but it's an internal law. It's written not on the tablets of stone, but it's written on the tablets of our heart. And he's speaking from the mountain, and the Bible says that he was seated. And we can just read over that and think, well, what was Jesus doing? He was just saying, hey, guys, this is going to be a while. Let's get comfortable. No, in fact, Jesus was seated because he was demonstrating not only through his position on the mountain, but his posture of being seated, that he was speaking with authority. You see, the, the, the posture of sitting is the posture of authority. How many of you know that kings sit on the throne? And, and judges sit on the bench, so to speak. Uh, you, you know, uh, defendants stand trial, but the judge sits. And what Jesus is saying here, he's revealing through his position and his posture that he is speaking authoritatively. Now, let me tell you what that means. That means that we cannot just brush off Jesus' teaching. He won't let us brush off his teaching. He won't let us just say, that's a nice teaching. Now I'm going to continue to live life however I want to live life. He is revealing that he is speaking with authority. 
that if you want to live life in the kingdom of God, I am telling you, I'm giving you the guidelines of what life will look like. Not through our own effort, but through the work of the Holy Spirit that brings about a transformed heart that produces a transformed life. And he is, he is revealing that. That's why at the, book, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says this, that the people marveled because he spoke as one with authority. He was demonstrating through his posture and his position that he was speaking with authority. Now let's continue to read what Jesus says. It says, Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed, blessed, blessed. If you were to read this passage and you were to say, what is the key word in this passage? What would you guess the key word in this passage is? You guys are getting better all the time. You're getting better all the time. The key word is blessed, blessed. Now, we as Christians today can read that word and we just brush over it. We think that the word blessed is just kind of a, a Christian nicety. You know, it's kind of, uh, uh, you know, you hang around church long enough and you're going to start signing your emails by saying blessing. Blessing, Justin, right? You hang around church long enough and you're going to get a plaque from Hobby Lobby that has kind of, you know, swirly font that says blessing, because that's just what Christian people say, blessing. And, you know, if you've been around church long enough, you can kind of think, well, that's what blessing is. It's just kind of some nice spiritual nicety, and it it almost becomes a word that is meaningless. I remember when I was in fifth grade, my, my fifth grade teacher banned the word nice. You remember that, Mom? She banned the word nice. She said that nice gets used so much that it becomes meaningless. And oftentimes the word blessing can be the same way, but but I, I think we don't need to ban blessing. We need to bring blessing back. We need to bring back the significance of this word blessed. Blessed. Jesus says nine times in these few verses that we read, blessed, blessed, blessed. So what does that word mean if that is the main idea out of this passage which defines life in the kingdom of God? What does the word blessed mean? Well, in its origin, it is the word makarios. Can you all say that word? Makarios. Just roll your R a little bit. Makarios. And that word means happy, fortunate, or to be envied. It is a proclamation uh, of Uh, It's a congratulatory proclamation. If somebody has just had a baby, you may say makarios. If somebody has just gotten a promotion, you may say makarios. If somebody's just gotten engaged, you may say makarios. It is a a pronouncement of blessing. And, And really within that word, that word contains uh, the the. Vision for the good life. You know, we may not use the word blessed in culture a lot, even within the church, let alone outside of the church. But how many of you know everybody has a vision for the good life? Everybody has a vision for the blessed life. 
It, it, it probably sounds this way. If I could just get to this job, then life would be good. If I just got, uh, you know, into that relationship status, be it if I just went from being single to married or married to single or whatever the change is, if I just got to this place in life, then I would be blessed. How many of you know everybody has a vision for the good life? We all have a vision for the good life. And it's really, uh, we could say it this way, it is a picture of salvation. If I could just get to this place, then I would experience the good life. And for the people of Israel who heard this teaching, this word contained within it all of their cultural ideals. This word was the word that they knew from the scripture that God had spoken over Adam and Eve. When he made them, he blessed them. This is the word that was promised to Abram. When God said to Abram, Abram, I will bless you and you shall be a blessing. This contained within it, this word makarios, contained within it all of their cultural values for the good life. And ultimately, every individual has a vision for the good life, but every culture also has a vision for the good life. Our cultural values create a vision for the good life. Here in America, we call it the American dream, right? It is the idea that if I could just get into, you know, maybe it's a suburban house or an urban house or a bigger house, picket fence, 2.5 kids, a dog and a cat, a certain car and a boat, come on, <laughs> then I'd be happy. Then I'd be blessed. And, and I want you to know there's nothing wrong with those things inherently. There's nothing wrong with those things, but God wants us to live with a vision bigger than just the American dream. He wants us to live not just with the American dream, but with a kingdom dream. And here's what Jesus says. He, he continues and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but if I, made a, if I made a list of things that looked like the good life, I'd put the boat at the top. I wouldn't put the poor in spirit. I, I wouldn't put those who mourn. How many of you know, uh, if we had a prayer line and, you, and we just said, if you want more mourning in your life, just a deep sorrow, just something that wells up and it's just mourning, deep mourning. How, how many of you know that would not be a very long line? Yeah, that would not be a very long line. And, and, and so here's the question I want us to ask. What do we do with these statements from Jesus? Now, here's what I have kind of had in my mind to be honest, I've spent most of my life thinking this was a list of virtues. This was a list of things that I needed to be. And probably most of us have thought that. But the truth is, when you really study this, this is actually not desirable characteristics. You can try to spiritualize it and say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You need to be hungry for righteousness. But how many of you know 
the time when you're hungry for righteousness is when you have no righteousness. <laughs> we can say meek. Well, meek means power under control. That's not what this word means. This word just means weak. This word just means pathetic. This word just means sorry. It just means nothing. You know, somebody that, that carries no presence of strength with them. They're, they're just weak. They're meek. We read on. I think most of us would say, yeah, when you start reading things like persecution, now, is there an element where God is honoring these things? Absolutely. But I, I, my point is here, Jesus is, is not saying, I want you to go be these things. Otherwise, let's all go do something to get ourselves persecuted. And, and you know, think that you're, and persecution may happen, but how many of you know, it doesn't mean we need to go look for it. So here's my point. What Jesus is not saying is, here's a list of virtues, here's a list of characteristics that you need to become if you want to live in my kingdom. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is this is not a list of what you need to become to experience life in my kingdom. What this is is a guest list of people who are welcomed in the kingdom. A guest list, a list of things that, that in the natural, we may feel like that's the last thing I want to be. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. I feel hungry and thirsty for righteousness, God, when I have no righteousness. When I recognize that, that I've sinned and I've messed up, I, I become a peacemaker. How many of you know in order to be a peacemaker, you've got to be in the middle of conflict? So Jesus is not saying this is what you need to become. He's saying that if you are in this place, I have some good news for you. You may not be in the place that you always dreamed of being, but even in the midst of that place, you can still be makarios. You can still be blessed. You can still live life to the full. This listing of characteristics is what Dallas Willard calls spiritual zeros. Nothings, nobodies. These are not the people that in a church you would think, we just need some people that are, you know, that, that are, uh, you know, that are persecuted. We just need more persecuted people. That's, he, I mean, if you're, if you're looking through the Spirit, you may see it as beautiful. But in the natural, these are not characteristics that anybody would want. He, he calls it spiritual zeros. And here's the reality that every single one of us, apart from Jesus, are a zero. I don't know what if you remember this, but when you came into this world, you know what you had with you? Nothing. When you leave this world, do you know what you're taking with you? Nothing. You can dress it up. You can make it look pretty. You can pitch it any way that you want. But the fact is that every single one of us and every person in humanity apart from Jesus is a zero. That may not be very encouraging, but let me give you some good news. That you and I in our own abilities, our own 
flesh, our own merit, our own worth. Although we're zeros, Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. And when you take a zero and you put it behind a one, when a zero follows a one, do you know what it becomes? It's a ten. That means this, that we may be a zero, I'm a zero, you're a zero, but when I follow Jesus, I go from being a zero to being a 10 out of 10. Come on, then you put another zero behind me, a very pretty zero over here, and we become 100%. You put another zero and another zero and another zero and another zero, and all of us together, how many of you know it becomes something great? This is the good news of the gospel of the Beatitudes is that Jesus is not saying you need to become this. He's saying you are this. And even in that place of nothingness, through my goodness and through my love, you are blessed. You are blessed. Now, I don't know about you, but that can become shocking to me. Jesus is saying on your worst days, you are blessed. When you don't get the job, you are blessed. When you face disappointment and frustration, and when your plans don't go the way that you thought they should go, and maybe even everybody around you talks bad about you, you can still be blessed. What would it look like if a community of people actually believed this? What would it look like if a group of people said, regardless of my circumstances, I can live blessed. I'm happy. Why are you happy? I saw the car you pulled up in. I saw you walking down the street. I saw you. You've walked 20 miles to get here. You don't even have a car to drive because I'm still blessed. I'm still blessed. This is a counterculture. And it's oftentimes a culture that is absent in the American church. Go to other parts of the world and you see people that recognize when they have nothing, they are still blessed. That is the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God. Whether you have a lot or whether you have a little, whether things go according to your hopes and plans and dreams or not, you can still be blessed. That's counterculture. That's counterculture. And for the hearers of this, it was probably as shocking as it would be to our world around us. When your candidate doesn't get into office, you're still blessed. When, when it doesn't go the way you hoped it would, you're still blessed. When you get the diagnosis that you were praying against, you're still blessed. You're still blessed. I remember as a kid, my family moved to England And I remember what it felt like to experience culture shock. I didn't know that's what it was called at the time. But I remember moving from the sunshine state to the drizzle capital of the world. (laughs) I remember that feeling. I mean, it was just everything was different. The food was different. Now, this was before the internet. So there's been a lot more, you know, uh, cultural, uh, you know, similarities now. But... I remember the food was different. The cars were different. They drove on another side of the street. Uh, it, it, wherever I went, I was just, I, I encountered this feeling of this place is different. I'm not where I used to be. And that's what God wants us to feel 
as people that are of the kingdom of God. We are carriers of a different culture. We are carriers of a different culture that when we walk into an atmosphere, people may not say it, but they should sure think it. You're not from here, are you? You're not from around here. You must not be watching our news. You must not be, you, you must not be familiar with the circumstances of our day because you're not like us. It's a counterculture. And here's what I want you to see is that the gospel does not just change our destination. It changes how we walk to get there. It changes how we walk to get there. Is there a reason why people are not more attracted to the people of God than they are? I'm not pointing fingers at y'all. How many of you know if one finger points, there's some that point back at me? Is it because that we have just reflected the culture of the world around us? The church has made it our highest priority to think, how can we become just like the world around us? And we've wondered why nobody wants to come into the church. (laughs) God's calling us not just to go to heaven when we die. He's calling us to walk differently here and now. That's the message of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Eternity is now in session. Therefore, what is our response? Notice in this passage that we've read, Jesus has not given one instruction. He's not given one instruction. He's not told us to do anything. It's all been pronouncements, makarios. Blessed are you when people revile and persecute you. Blessed are you uh, when you're weak. Blessed are you when you're you're hungry, hungry and thirsty for righteousness. You have no righteousness. Blessed are you when you're poor in spirit. You're a, you're a know-nothing who can do nothing. You're blessed in that moment. When we really believe that, how do we respond? I want to give you three things as we prepare to close. Number one, we respond. Number one, we receive it. We receive it. The Bible says this of Abraham, that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. God appeared to him and said, you're blessed. And so shall your descendants be. In the natural, Abraham, Abram at that time didn't have any descendants. But the Bible says that even in spite of what he saw with his eyes, he believed or he received what God said about him greater than the natural circumstances that he saw with his eyes. The Bible says it this way in the book of Hebrews. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably and with reverence. We're receiving a kingdom. We're receiving a kingdom. When, when the pronouncement of blessing, the pronouncement of, of congratulations... You're happy, you're fortunate to be envied. Begs the question of will we receive it? Will we receive it? How do we receive it? Everything that we receive from God, we receive by grace through faith. The Bible says this about Abram's blessing. That through Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham has come upon the Gentiles. That means all of us are blessed in Jesus. That means that that will change the way you see your life. You may be a victim in the natural, but when you receive the blessing, the gospel, 
the pronouncement of God's goodness on your life, you're no longer a victim. You may still be in, in circumstances that don't match up with what Jesus says about you, but you're not a victim, you're a victor. You, you may feel like you're a have-not. You may look at everybody else and think they get all the good gifts, but when you believe what Jesus says about you, you begin to live no longer as a have-not, but you're a have through Jesus. I have all I need for life in godliness. So number one, we receive it. This is how we respond. We receive it. Number two, we repent. Repent. And notice the order that that comes in. First, we receive it by faith, and then there will be a repentance, a change of mind that results in a change of lifestyle that flows out of that faith. It, 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 you know, you begin to think differently. When you believe you've come into a new kingdom, you begin to think differently. How many of you know you can be in a new place but be stuck in an old mindset? And there's a lot of people who have come into the kingdom but still have a have a worldly state of mind. They've come into the kingdom of light. As the scripture says, they've come into the kingdom of light, but they still have a mindset of darkness. They're still thinking that way. It's kind of like, you know, some of you, maybe your parents or grandparents that came through the Great Depression. Long after the Great Depression was over, they were still squirreling away little things. Some of you know what, I'm talking about your, your parents right now or your grandparents. Raise your hand if you've got a parent or a grandparent that was like that. They came out of it, but they're still living in it. Why? Because they've still, they're out of the depression, but they've got depression in their mind. That de depressed state of mind. And, and Jesus, that's why Jesus says this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, have a change of mindset in order to experience the life with God. Even long after we moved to America or moved to England as a kid and then moved back to America, I, I, there was still some things in my mind that had to change. I don't mean that in a negative sense. It was a wonderful time living in England. But when I first moved to England, I still thought like an American. And I said things like, yes, ma'am. And in England, they informed me that that's what you only said to the queen. So for me to say yes, ma'am, to my teacher was kind of like saying yes, your highness. How many of you know there's a slight sarcastic edge to that? <laughs> I remember we moved to England and I was still eating peanut butter and jelly. Now, how many of you, some of you know in England, they don't eat peanut butter and jelly. I mean, jelly is jam and they don't eat that. But I still ate it because I was American in my mind. You get what I'm saying. So number one, we must receive. Kendall, you can come back up. Number two, we repent. A change of mind that results in a change of direction. And the third thing is we rejoice. We rejoice. I'm telling you, when you believe what God says about you, you may not be a dancer, I'm not a dancer, but when I believe what Jesus says about me, I can't help but dance a little bit. I can't help but want to lift up my hands. I can't help but want to sing and shout. Why? Because I'm Makarios. Have you ever seen a dad that's just received the news? He's going to be a dad. 
or his baby has just been born. He may be an introvert in the natural, but all of a sudden he's got to go around telling everybody, Brad, you remember, I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to have a baby. I, I am blessed. I am Makarios. You want to rejoice. It's the most natural thing in the world, and that's what God wants us to be, to live our lives in the goodness of the kingdom of God. I want to ask you, if you would, just to stand to your feet. And let's, for just a moment, let's...